Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow of the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the science of orgasm. What does it mean to have an orgasm? And how do you study this scientifically? It's way more complicated than you might think because different people and even different scientists define orgasm in different ways. And it gets even more complicated when you start talking about things like multiple orgasms. What does it mean to have multiple orgasms? How much time elapses between each one? Do they have to occur back to back? If you want to step back and study orgasm objectively in a research lab, it's a surprisingly tricky business. But it's really important for several reasons. For example, if we want to help close the orgasm gap between heterosexual men and women, we really need to understand the science of orgasm. This knowledge is also crucial for helping people who might have orgasmic difficulties. For insight into what we do and don't know about orgasms, I'm joined today by Dr. Nicole Prousey a licensed psychologist and sex researcher who founded the sexual biotechnology company Liberos. She is a former Kinsey Institute trainee and has published an extensive body of research on the neuroscience and psychophysiology of sex. I can't wait to talk all about orgasms, so let's dive right in. Hi, Nikki, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks, Justin. I'm happy to talk about orgasms with you. <laughs> I am so excited to talk about orgasms with you, and it's so nice to see you again. But before we dive into all the good stuff about orgasms, can you tell us a little bit about your backstory? So specifically, how did you come to be a sex researcher in the first place? What drew you to this area? Uh, absolutely nothing drew me to this area. And what <laughs> I mean by that is... Like most of us, I think, who stumbled into this, I didn't know this was a field of research. I was going to school at Indiana University. I had a lab credit that I needed and looking through the catalog, I was like, Kinsey Institute. Huh. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to study with, I think, a mentor of ours, Eric Janssen. And the first study I ever did there was looking at older women's vaginal responses, which we thought might be facilitated by a drug they were taking. And I thought that was amazing. I was like, I can't believe I don't have to just like ask people about this or read magazines about this. Like there's a way to objectively study this stuff. And I was sold. You know, there, there was no going back. (laughs) It, pinged all the nerd requirements. You know, there's a lot of hardware design and computer scripting that goes into that. So if you like those kind of things, sex psychophys is the place to be. <laughs> so yeah, I just loved it from then on. And there's so many good questions in our field. It's uh, the good and the bad part of, you know, lots of it being such a tiny field is there are still really big questions that haven't been answered yet. Yeah, and that's why I did a whole episode recently with Lisa Don Hamilton about what we don't know about sex, because there really is so much that we don't know, in part because it's a small field. It's really hard to get funding for sex research. I know you've dealt with that struggle, and all of us as sex researchers have dealt with it at one time or another. And Mm -hmm. so there are lots of roadblocks and obstacles to answering sometimes just even very basic questions about human sexuality. But we are grateful to have you in the field doing all of the nerdy stuff and helping us to really understand what is going on with orgasms. So let's talk about that. 
But before we get into like all the tech that you've created and used to study orgasms, let's begin with that definitional question of what is an orgasm anyway? So as a scientist who studies this, how do you define the term orgasm? And is that something that has changed for you over time? An orgasm is defined in my physiology role as uh, 8 to 12 contractions that occur throughout the pelvis starting 0.8 seconds apart and increasing in latency to their termination. (laughs) Very precise definition. (laughs) (laughs) So physiologically speaking, we have a very precise definition. Psychologist, an orgasm is when you tell me you had (laughs) <laughs> so if you come in uh, you know, and tell me you don't have orgasm difficulties in my clinic, I'm not going to say, well, are you having contractions? Because <laughs> yeah, we may need to fix this. It really varies. But certainly from a scientific perspective, if I want to understand the sequelae and things we might be able to do with a climax response, I need to know, you know if you had this really specific response or not. Yeah. So you talked about both the psychological component and the physiological component of orgasm. So when you're studying orgasms in your lab, are you measuring both of them? And also when you're measuring the genital contractions, what is it that you're looking for there? What kind of technology do you use to assess whether or not an orgasm happened? So this is many-year journey (laughs) to arrive at our protocol. And of course, we ask people, your only assignment during these high arousal states is please, please remember to press the button when your orgasm starts (laughs) and when it stops. And we make the button really big and red. It's right beside your chair. And all we want you to do is press the button when it starts and when it stops. And sometimes they remember. So (laughs) that's the extent of their task generally uh, during those periods for the psychological component. From physiology, we're recording all kinds of things. The part that's most important for the climax itself is catching those contractions. And because I study men and women, I want to be able to study everyone in between as well. And so we developed a device to record from the anus. There are lots of advantages to that over trying to capture vaginal contractions, for example. So vagina gets wet. We tried that. It expels our instrument a lot because it's wet. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. not a great technique in the guise. Otherwise, you could be strapping uh, electromyographic or EMG sensors into the perineum. Typically, we tape or gel those. Not a lot of guys crazy about having genital hairs caught up in that. And so we said, okay, well, if we're going to go for the anus, we realize that's a tough bridge for a lot of people to cross. You know, this is a lot to ask for our research participants to wear something that in their bottom that's going to enable us to see those contractions. And so we went through many, many, many designs of trying to figure out, you know, how can we make this thing small so it's going to be comfortable for most folks. And so then we'd kind of like miniaturized and gotten it down. And then we started realizing it was getting expelled the way that we had it. So at the crucial moment, the thing pops out. Like, shoot. So we got to do something to anchor it you know, so that it doesn't get popped out at that time. And so we ended up creating kind of this modified butt plug that, and what I mean by modified is typically those plugs have something that kind of prevents them from coming out easily, a little bit of a ridge or something. So we made a ridge that just had a pretty profound uh, wall. So rather than having a gentle slope that's typical, it was very small, but it was a more up and down wall so that it couldn't be expelled from the anus as easily. We 3D printed these, so it's fairly rigid at its base. 
But then the actual recording device, you start trying with electromyographic sensors or the ZMG to capture muscle tone, it picked up too much noise. But what we discovered is we could look at air displacement. So we wrapped this butt plug in a little plastic tube that has some air in it that's under some amount of pressure. We don't need to really pressurize it so it's not going to explode in their uh, butt or anything. <laughs> and we look at, you know, this transmitted through, if you like playing with uh, hardware, you've probably played with Arduino boards or Raspberry Pi boards before. And so we built something that fed into this differential sensor that went into an Arduino. So these pre-built, prefabricated kind of mechanical engineering boards, and then that would go into a USB in our computer, where could re- we could record it in a number of different softwares. So our design is actually available on thingiverse.com, which is a very common place people go for 3D printed objects. You can make one for yourself if you like. <laughs> <laughs> make your own 3D printed specialty butt plug to measure your yes. own orgasms. Fascinating. Yay, science. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what I was saying at the top of the show. You know, measuring orgasms in the lab is a tricky business. And there's a lot of tech and other things that you need to think about if you want to really be able to measure what is happening in the body during an orgasm. Now, as we mentioned, orgasms have both this physiological component and this psychological component. So as you said, you've got the butt plug to measure the physiological part, and then people are pressing the red button, indicating the psychological part when the orgasm happens. But these things, these physiological and psychological components don't always line up in the ways that you might expect. So for example, I know I've spoken with you before about your work and you've talked about how some women report having reached an orgasm in your study and experienced feelings of pleasure, but they didn't experience the accompanying muscular contractions in the genital area. And at the same time, we know from other research that some people experience those muscular contractions, but they don't experience feelings of pleasure. And in some cases, they actually experience negative feelings or sadness. And so I'm curious as to what you make of all of this, because there's sometimes this disconnect between the physiology and the psychology of orgasm. And I know that Adam Saffron has argued that orgasm and climax are two separate things, with orgasm being the psychological component and climax being the physiological component. So do you think maybe differentiating those processes might be helpful to better understanding why we see that disconnect sometimes? Yeah, so far in the lab, uh, we've only seen the one instance that is where people say, particularly women, say they're having a climax and we're not able to see contractile evidence of that. So we have not yet seen the case where there were contractions and they did not report having a climax. Uh, Certainly questionnaire research suggests that could be the case. And we have seen about half of the women that we've studied have had that kind of a report. That is, they say they had a climax and we don't see evidence for it. We have not yet seen that in a guy. Uh, We do know that those processes are clearly dissociable. We often see that in men who are taking medications that cause them to become dissociated. And so they'll make those kind of reports you know, that having these kind of atypical or strange experiences. But there are certainly these two competing hypotheses to explain like why this might be happening, especially in women. And because it seems a lot more common in women, at least in our hands so far, that is uh, kind of to your point, it could be that because these are dissociable processes, what men, women are actually reporting to us is this climax experience. 
And if only we would instruct them to report the physiological experience, then those two things would line up. That's a possibility. The one that I think is more likely, the other explanation, is more educational-based. So that is when we tell women, if we get that far in sex ed, what is the climax? <laughs> They'll say, oh, it's a rush, a warm feeling, you know, pleasure uh, washes over you. Well, that happens a lot in sex when it's not climax. And so my guess is that a lot of these women think they're having that experience when in fact, from, from a physiologist's definition, at least they're not. And you know, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. <laughs> if they believe they are, I'm not going to fight with them. But my concern is, as a physiologist, I need to know if the physiology happened or not, because I want to study the concomitants. You know, what sequelae happened from that? Like, what can I expect uh, neurochemically, for example? So that's part of why we harp on that contractile response is we need to know for those purposes. But yeah, I think uh, you know, we're very, very early stages of trying to differentiate which of those hypotheses might be driving this dissociation, especially in women, between the orgasm experience and the orgasm evidence. Yeah. And as you just pointed out there, there's still so much we have to learn about orgasm and so much that we still just don't understand. And, you know, something else I'm thinking about here as you're describing this is, well, if you're somebody who never had an orgasm before in the sense of, you know, physiologically having those muscular contractions, how would you know what an orgasm was or what it felt like? And so it's very possible that you might label something else as an orgasm. And that might be part of the reason why we see different people kind of having different definitions, different descriptions of what orgasms feel like for them. And so I think your research is very valuable here in terms of helping us to better understand what's going on. But as you've said, we still have a long ways to go. Now, let me ask you about the subject of multiple orgasms, because this term gets thrown around a lot, and it's not entirely clear what it means to have multiple orgasms. I mean, are we talking about back-to-back -back orgasms with continued sexual stimulation? Are you allowed to take breaks? How much time can pass between each orgasm in order for it to count as a multiple orgasm? What are your thoughts on that? What does it really mean to you as an orgasm researcher to have multiple orgasms? So absolutely, in the literature, there is not consensus. And I would say there's not even really speculation. <laughs> that is, I have only seen people really quantify multiple orgasms as they said they did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they, they checked a box that says, I have multiple orgasms. And that's, again, fine. It's worth asking, but very, very limited as far as our uh, ability to know what's happening. So I am really curious if multiples can occur in the sense of that having that contractile experience at repeated periods and how long that might take. So we had a number of people, uh, again, women in the laboratory who would say they have multiple orgasms and reported having multiples, even some of them in our laboratory who were not having contractions. And so to your point, like that's one place where I'm curious when we sometimes hear these reports of, oh, you know, I had 20, here's how you can do it. Did they? You know, like maybe it's that their orgasm experience is different. You know, it's not this contractile thing. So I'm very skeptical nowadays. Like I was initially, but now like more so <laughs> when I hear these kind of super performers, you know, people who say they can have so many one after the other. I doubt it. 
And I don't doubt it because I think they're lying. I think it's, you know, we're having very different definitions of what that is. And that also, to me, informs the supposed gender difference that, oh, women can have multiples and men can't. And I think, you know, sex research has revised that now to it's more common that women can and it's uh, less common in guys or you'd have to like specifically target that. I, I go even further than that. I think it's actually, if you limit the claims to these contractile orgasms, I think men and women are probably pretty similar in the rate that they're able to have multiple experiences. My bet is, and I'll, I'll put 20 bucks on the table, you know, <laughs> 10 years from now, we're going to say, oh, that wasn't a gender difference. I, I think that it's a definitional problem. I don't mm. think we have an actual gender difference in multiple orgasm capacity. I think the most likely case is that women are not as capable as we currently believe they are. That is fascinating. And I think you brought up a really important point there when somebody says they have this experience and here's how you can do it too. Well, you have to keep in mind that everybody's body is a little different. What feels pleasurable is different. What you might define or describe as orgasm might be a little bit different. And so that's where I think sometimes with the self-help category of sex that people run into issues is that somebody says, this is what you need to do to experience this. And then it doesn't work for them. And then they think there's something wrong with them because it doesn't happen that way. It's like, well, maybe that was just that one person's experience. And it's not broadly generalizable to the masses. I'm glad you brought up the subject of multiple orgasms and gender differences because there are a lot of people who say women can have them, men can't, and it's because men have this refractory period. And you can trace that narrative back to Masters and Johnson in the 1960s who laid out what is still our contemporary understanding of the sexual response cycle. But I've personally grown a little skeptical of the whole refractory period idea because it's one of those things that in the scientific literature just seems really poorly understood. And there are lots of hypotheses about, you know, it's this hormone, this neurotransmitter that controls it. And then there's these studies that don't find support for it. And so it's like, we don't really know what's going on there. And, you know, I've also heard from many men who can have multiple orgasms, and I've even had them myself. So, you know, I realize this is something that can happen. So I'm just curious to hear more broadly what your take is on the refractory period and, you know, the sexual response cycle that Masters and Johnson developed. You know, this was developed a half century ago, long before they had the, you know, incredible technologies that we do today. So do you think that maybe we're operating under some perhaps mistaken assumptions about how that whole thing works? Yeah, the refractory, we know so little about, because even I turn my machine off after about five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guilty. (laughs) So yeah, there's this idea that prolactin may be a pacing chemical that is a prolactin surge that often occurs at climax, makes it more difficult, uh, or is part of what makes it more difficult to become aroused post-orgasmically. And it seems like in some researchers' hands, that's not the case or it's unrelated. And my sense is one of the things, again, you know, if I try and forecast the future in that sexual response cycle, I want to make an edit. (laughs) That is, I want to add in their sexual response in addition to it not being linear and kind of common concerns about that, that I think they're missing a huge piece of that, uh, that I call the periorgasmic period. And so my colleagues and I have been noticing this. It's very, very common in our fields. You either study the first three minutes of arousal, or maybe you look like 
climax and right after there are a few labs that do that, but almost all of them, three to five minutes, that's it. We have no idea that what happens after that. <laughs> and so we actually kept the machines on, you know, at least up through that time. And so the idea with Masters and Johnson is you get aroused and then you get more aroused and then you get more aroused and eventually blow, you know, climax here. And so the idea would be, if that's true, that you just need to increase the intensity of the stimulation to the point that you can get over this hump and experience a climax. What we found was um, by chance, the way we designed our orgasm protocol was to do a stimulation on, stimulation off, stimulation on, stimulation off. We do that a few times. Sometimes we have them do it with their hands. Sometimes we do it automatically for them with a computer controlled vibrator. And then we say, okay, very nice. Uh, now try and have a climax if you can. And again, your only job is to press a big red button. <laughs> and so during that period, what was really interesting is leading up, we see. Uh, suppression of alpha activity in the brain and increase in galvanic skin response. When we give them the instruction to attempt to have a climax, we see increasing alpha in the brain and we see decreasing galvanic skin response. And we assume at first our instruments fell off, something happened. And we're now pretty convinced that's not the case, that this is a unique state. And what that suggests is to actually have a climax experience, you need to be somewhat in this relaxed, wakeful, non-effortful state where your sympathetic nervous system tone is actually decreased. So you need to have some level of arousal. We don't know what that is. And then you need to release control to allow a climax to happen. Very consistent um, with Adam Saffron's ideas of how climax might be triggered. And so my sense is with the refractory period is it's more a question of like, can you get back in that periorgasmic brain state? Mm-hmm. And part of why we don't know anything about how that pacing can work or how we could shorten it if you want to do that is we didn't know that brain state existed. <laughs> so <laughs> we should really figure out that whole sexual response thing before we go trying to modify what happens afterwards. So again, lots of questions there. I think there are very good animal models showing this pacing phenomena. So I don't think it's worthless. You know, I do think there's some pacing involved. Uh, I don't know how well the rodent stuff generalizes to humans. I can absolutely imagine that it's going to be harder afterwards. I don't think that's a myth. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I think that's real. But the question is the, the extent to which you can modify that. You know, can you do things to facilitate uh, subsequent sexual arousal? Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm thinking of a lot of different things here. One is how when people are studying sex in a lab and somebody has to masturbate to orgasm or, you know, in the case of Masters and Johnson, where people are having partnered sex in the lab setting, you know, that's a really unique situation. And that might actually make it less conducive to having multiple orgasms unless you're somebody who just happens to have them really easily because there's like some extra level of stress, I think, that is often involved there. Unless, you know, maybe you're like a really big exhibitionist or something, which in which case that might be a real turn on, you know? So there is that selection effect for people who enter these studies. And then the nature of the experiment itself. And so it might not always be this perfect reflection of how things work in people's everyday daily life in terms of when they're having sex and masturbating. And so I think that that also just adds a little bit of further complexity here. But I do think you're right that there still is so much more we have to learn about the refractory period and multiple orgasms and maybe what it is that unlocks them. I know that there are so many different ideas out there in the popular media. Actually, I have a book on my shelf behind me right now. It's 
it's called Any Man Can, and it's designed to teach anybody how to have multiple orgasms. And so, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there, but it's just, there's still a lot to learn. Now, we have much more to discuss, including tips for dealing with orgasmic difficulties and what actually happens inside the brain during an orgasm. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. If you're running a podcast, you need the most reliable and high-quality recording program out there, which is why I use Zencaster. It's easy to use and produces consistently great results. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, SEXANDPSYCH, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. Want to give your intimate life a boost? Promescent is here to help you have better sex. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. They also have a female arousal gel, lubricants, supplements, and so much more. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is sex researcher, Dr. Nicole Prousey. Now, we talked earlier about how some people experience what are known as anhedonic orgasms or orgasms that aren't accompanied by feelings of pleasure and sometimes lead to feelings of sadness. However, there are also some people who literally get sick every time they have an orgasm, and this is called post-orgasmic illness syndrome. Now, we don't really know how common this is, but it does seem to be more prevalent in men than it is in women. But basically, after any orgasm, whether through sex or masturbation, they develop these flu-like symptoms that can last for up to a week. And I know that you received a grant, Nikki, to study this condition. So I'm curious as to whether there's anything you can share about what you found or what you think might be going on in the people who experience this. This study was our pandemic heartbreak. <laughs> we had just started recruitment when COVID-19 started. So we are much, much delayed, but I'll share what I know so far. And that is these guys appear to be fairly rare to your point. That is uh, the group that's funding our research is a national organization of rare diseases <laughs> for a reason. Uh, we think it's fairly uncommon. And it's kind of remarkable how similar a lot of their symptomatology seems to be. So, you know, some of them will report more kind of fuzzy cognition issues, but a lot of them are strongly flu-like. You know, they, they seem to kind of get a cold every time. And Marcel Waldinger was a main early force in trying to study these guys. And the theory at the time was potentially some autoallergen that is either something in the ejaculate or some aspect of that process that contained something that they were allergic to, which resulted in a few case studies where guys would try to auto-inoculate, and that's exactly what it sounds like, <laughs> is putting their own ejaculate into their body. Can't recommend, not good clinical evidence for it. <laughs> and our theory was that you know, it could be an autoallergen, and we need to explore that possibility. That's the predominant theory to the extent there's any theory. <laughs> but the, uh, another possibility is that something to do with the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which appears to be unique in sexual response. So with Tierney Lorenz, she and I are conducting a study where we're bringing these guys and using our orgasm protocol to monitor their physiology, 
during the experience, but largely also their inflammatory cytokines pre and post orgasm. And surprisingly, we do not know what happens to inflammation post orgasm. It's literally just unknown. There's not like some small case study or small, it's unknown. No one has asked. <laughs> so we also have a large control group <laughs> that we're collecting with that. And the goal is to try and compare the inflammatory responses of these guys. So we're limiting it to men because it's predominantly seen in guys and contrast to the controls. You know, we have to have the controls because we don't know what's typical. And looking at IL-4 and 6, which are interleukins that are commonly measured as indexes of systemic inflammation. So I am so excited to get these data because number one, they're profoundly unique in their own right in the controls, <laughs> much less for these guys who are suffering to try and understand is the experience they're having tied to our measure of sympathetic activation during their climax, which we're capturing uh, with galvanic skin response, or is it invariant to that? That is, they seem to have these inflammatory responses one way or the other. So I think it would be nice for the guys just to have, in some sense, the validation that there is a shift in their inflammatory response that's atypical. And some of that is just, you know, a way that science, I think, can help people feel validated in their experience. When someone says, well, that's weird, that can't be real, they hopefully will be able to say, you know, here are some data showing that our response is different <laughs> from other people's. And ideally, we want to get a mechanism to see, you know, what should we be targeting if we want to intervene to help these guys? What is it that's associated with their negative experience? And we're hoping that those two indices primarily, that is a measure of the sympathetic tone during their orgasm response, and then the inflammatory variability is going to help guide us to what the answer is for those folks. I can't wait to see what the data say, because this all is so fascinating to me. And I think it also points to yet another reason why studying orgasms is really important and worthwhile, because there are some people who experience things like post-orgasmic illness syndrome. And if you don't study the physiology and what is actually happening and going on there, then you're going to have a really hard time developing effective treatments for these people. And with post-orgasmic illness syndrome in particular, it can be a really devastating condition. You know, I've read case reports of some of these men who, you know, they go to great lengths to avoid sex and masturbation, even though they would like to do it, but they can't do it because they literally get sick from it. And so they'll try and plan sex around times when they know they can be out of commission, like have a vacation week coming up, right? Because they know it's going to take a long recovery time. And, you know, the idea of that is just sad, right? Because most of us take for granted that you could have sex kind of like, almost any time and, you know, you're going to feel good afterwards. But, you know, in this case, this is really unique and it can have a really profound impact on somebody's life and their happiness. And so, again, just yet another important reason why the science of orgasms is important. Now, a lot of people talk about there as being different types of orgasms, with one of the most common distinctions being clitoral orgasms versus vaginal orgasms versus G-spot orgasms. 
And likewise, many people report experiences with non-genital orgasms, in which they experience an orgasm without any genital stimulation, and sometimes not even in a sexual situation. So for example, in a recent nationally representative survey in the United States, researchers found that about one in 10 Americans reported that they had an orgasm while exercising, which some people refer to as a corgasm. There are also some people who say they get orgasms from nipple stimulation, some people who say they can think themselves to orgasm, others who say they orgasm whenever they eat certain foods. So I really have two questions here for you, and I'll start with this one. Do you think it's useful to think of there as being different types or kinds of orgasms, or is an orgasm just an orgasm? Are they all the same thing? I hate to yuck someone's yum, but I think they're largely all the same thing. <laughs> when people talk about types, the most common distinction being vaginal and clitoral in women. And my first question is usually, do you mean stimulated or experienced? So that is, are you saying the orgasm was due to stimulating your clitoris or stimulating your vagina? Or when you had your climax, you felt it more in your clitoris or felt it more in your vagina. And people don't always mean the same thing there. So that's always an important place to start. But an orgasm is an orgasm is an orgasm in the sense that it is a reflex. You know, from a physiologist perspective, when that cascade starts, a certain series of things is going to happen. <laughs> Very difficult to stop. So, you know, again, putting on the therapist hat, you tell me you like your clitoral more than your vaginal, like, awesome, keep having this clitoral orgasm. <laughs> the biologist is like, there's no difference. <laughs> you know, like, but it's absolutely the case. You, know, you might experience one more in another place. You know, maybe that's particularly sensitive or you used a vibrator that time. And so the sensitivity shifted a little bit in that session. I totally believe that could happen. It may feel a bit different in the moment, but I don't believe currently that we have any data to argue that they're truly different orgasm types. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also important to recognize that orgasms within a given individual will feel different at different points in time, depending on a number of factors. So for example, alcohol consumption in higher levels can not only delay orgasm, but it can lead to a weaker orgasm or one that feels less pleasurable or less intense. Whereas other substances you might take can make orgasms feel more pleasurable and intense. And, you know, you can also imagine how it might depend on the novelty of the situation and the intensity of passion and connection that you have with your partner and what activities you were doing specifically and how long you did them and everything else that came before it. And so, you know, it's totally normal that people are going to have different intensity levels of orgasms at different points in time. And sometimes orgasms might not even feel good, right? I know that Sarah Chadwick has done some work looking at bad orgasms, right? And how people sometimes feel like they had a ruined orgasm. And, you know, there are different factors that might play a role there in that. But, you know, it just points to the fact that, yes, physiologically, as you're saying, orgasms are orgasms in the sense of the genital contractions and how they occur. But that psychological feeling, the intensity of it can vary a lot mm -hmm. from situation to situation and from person to person. Now, since I brought up the subject of non-genital orgasms, you know, one example that I always think of here is I read a paper on non-genital orgasms and there was a participant who described how they have an orgasm every time they eat a ripe cherry tomato. And I'm like, that is interesting to me as a sex researcher and it's making me hungry. But I'm curious, 
have you or has anyone ever studied non-genital orgasms in a lab? You know, do we know whether orgasms induced from eating certain foods would look the same physiologically as orgasms from genital stimulation? There are folks who have tried to get the thinking off climax. So the idea that there's no touch and you're able to kind of mentally get yourself in this state. I tried to record one of those once from someone who reported an energy orgasm and they moved way too much. I couldn't get heads or tails of their EG signal. <laughs> and the challenge with that to me is, again, we're talking basically one study, uh, two if you want to be generous and count this case series. But in those cases, they did not attempt to record the peripheral physiology. So people reported that they were thinking off, they looked at the brain response during that time. And I have no idea what it meant because I don't know if they actually had a physical climax or not. So I think as a field, this is a bell I'll keep ringing as long as I can. That is the self-reports, especially if you're trying to measure other related physiology are not very useful without that genital response being verified, especially in women, but in general. So people claim to have documented it. You will absolutely find those in in Google Scholar if you look for them, but they have not been documented to my satisfaction. (laughs) So I'm, I'm open to the possibility, but I don't think we have documentation well, when I win the lottery, I'm going to give you a grant to study these non-genital orgasms so that we can yeah. finally understand what's going on there. You all heard that, right? You promised. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk about orgasms and what's happening in the brain when we experience one. And this is something that I've always personally been curious about because I've noticed that there's this thing that happens every time I have an orgasm, which is that there's this brief moment where my mind goes totally clear. It feels like there's sort of this hard reset of the brain that happens. And to me, that's actually one of the most pleasurable aspects of orgasm because I always have a lot of things going on in my head. And so having that brief moment of clarity where you temporarily forget everything feels amazingly good. And, you know, for anybody who's listening, if you have a similar experience, shoot me a message because I'm curious if I'm just a weirdo or if that's an experience that other people have with orgasm as well. But, you know, it's just for me, if I were asked to describe what it is that's how an orgasm feels or what's pleasurable about it, it's that you know, moment of clarity that comes. So anyway, that's enough about me. But Nikki, can you please tell us a little bit about what actually happens inside the brain during an orgasm? So maybe the most frustrating thing that is during the climax itself, we do not have a window on the actual event because the measurements that we use to capture the brain are the two most common, electroencephalography or functional magnetic resonance imaging. And they are so sensitive to movement that at the moment of climax, I think it's inappropriate to speculate that we have visibility on what's happening in the brain. And so we often make these inferences from the moment like immediately preceding and following what's happening in the brain. There are essentially three labs that have studied this and they found exactly opposite responses. Oh no. <laughs> so, yeah. So one of the laboratories says everything lights up. The other laboratory says everything shuts down. <laughs> <laughs> these both cannot be true. <laughs> so the bottom line is we don't know and we don't have visibility on the actual moment itself. And 
my money is on the shutting down because that's what we found. <laughs> but when I say, you know, shutting down, it's not in the sense of, you know, you become unable to respond to things around you or, you know, the brain is out and not firing. It's still operating, you know, at no point do you like stop transmitting or anything like that. <laughs> You know, we're looking at electrical signals in my case and oxygenated blood in the case of fMRI. Uh, I think it just makes a lot more sense with this kind of periorgasmic period that we're interested in that it would be a gross deactivation rather than gross activation. Yeah, my money's definitely on the gross deactivation because that makes sense with my <laughs> yeah, own personal experience. So <laughs> now we're running short on time, but I have one other important question for you. And it's about orgasmic difficulties which we know are common. And they're more common among women than they are among men. In fact, around one in six women report having had difficulty orgasming in the last year alone. So as an orgasm researcher, do you have any tips for people who have a hard time having an orgasm? What would you recommend that they do about that? So I talked to my collaborator in this space about this issue because we get asked this a lot. Like, if you get it, then you should be able to tell us how to do it. <laughs> so I, I think there are two things that make sense to me as kind of orgasm hacks. That is, number one, don't do the thing like, I just need to make it more intense. The stimulation is just not intense enough. You know, hurt yourself. Stop it. <laughs> like, <laughs> this idea that, you know, I, I just need to get something strong enough or... You know, I just need a, a device that hits this particular thing. It, it could be, you know, I'm not saying that would never be useful or the case to explore, but I don't think that's likely based on the data we have. I think if you get aroused enough, whatever that is, and we're still working on that, <laughs> that then you need to enter this kind of dissociative period where you, know, you uh, decrease your uh, exertion of control. How do you get in that brain state? One way to get there is to hyperventilate. And, you know, we always say in therapy, one of the reasons we do so much work around the breath is it's the one part of our sympathetic nervous system that we can control. It's more difficult to develop control of your heart rate. You know, it's more difficult to develop control of your galvanic skin response, but breathing we can do. You know, if you cause yourself to breathe very quickly in and out, you should be able to induce a brain state that's a bit more similar to the hyper-aroused state that we think people are in before they experience a climax. So that would be getting aroused as you normally would and then breathing quickly in a space where it is safe to fall in the event that you breathe too quickly and cause yourself to pass out. <laughs> that is a great option, probably with a partner there just in case. So obviously safety, you know, first. But hyperventilation might be a way of helping induce a brain state that's similar to what we think is necessary to cause a climax. So maybe a hack, something to try. <laughs> Hyperventilate and maybe be just a little bit selfish, you know, in the sense that you can let go and really experience that pleasure because you have to be in that state where it is. You can just let go and stop monitoring everything else that's going on and, and so forth. So, yeah, there's a little bit of selfishness in sex isn't necessarily a bad thing because we kind of need it to get to where we're going. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Nikki. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? I have work posted on librocenter.com. So L-I-B-E-R-O-S center, all one word, .com is an easy place to find all my links and research. And we're happy to have folks land there. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lay Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.